Okay, Mark 7. Let's read, uh, read the text here. <clears throat> then the Pharisees and some of the scribes uh, came together to him, having come from Jerusalem. Now, when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they don't eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches, uh, that is, like, beds. Um, then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples, why do they not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? He answered and said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men. The washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do, he said to them, all too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. <laughs> A lot of us probably wouldn't have made it <laughs> under the law, but you say... If a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is korban, or korban, that is, a gift to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition which you have handed down, and many such things you do. When he had called all the multitude, to himself, he said to them, Hear me, everyone, and understand. There's nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him. But the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. When he had entered a house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him concerning, concerning the parable. So he said to them, Are you, are you thus without understanding also? Do, do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him, because it doesn't enter his heart, but his stomach, and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods? And he said, what comes out of a man, that defiles him. That defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, or we might say greed, uh, blasphemy, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within and defile a man. 
From there he, he arose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and wanted no one to know it, but he could not be hidden. For a woman, a woman whose young daughter had an unclean, had an unclean spirit, whose young daughter, sorry, had an unclean spirit, heard about him, and she came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. But Jesus said to her, let the, let the children be filled first, for it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she answered and said to him, yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. Then he said to her, for this saying, go your way. The demon has gone out of your daughter. And when she had come to her house, she found the demon gone out and her daughter lying on the bed. And again, uh, again, departing from the region of Tyre and Sidon, he came through the midst of the region of Decapolis to the Sea of Galilee. Then they brought to him one who was deaf and had an impediment in his speech, and they begged him to put his hand on him. And he took him aside from the multitude and put his fingers in his ears. And he spat and touched his tongue. Then, looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. Immediately his ears were opened, and the impediment of his, of his tongue was loosed, and he spoke plainly. Then he commanded them that they should tell no one. But the more he commanded them, the more widely they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. <laughs> he makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. <laughs> Father, if we would um, maybe sit for a minute with that testimony of those around Jesus, I think it would do us a lot of good to just sit together and to say, he has done all things well. We are, I fear, quick in our hearts, in our attempts to decide what is good and what is bad in our lives. think it would be good for us. It would be good for us <laughs> to have this testimony to you. To be able to say to you, regardless of the things that we have suffered, he has done all things well. And while we can't possibly fathom the depth of your understanding of the world and of all of its workings, I think that, that I, I think that we can make that kind of statement to you by faith. As we learn more and more about your good character, that you are sure and steady and true and right in everything that you do. And you become for us, the truth about you becomes the place where we find solid ground beneath our feet in a world that feels 
like stormy waters so often. <laughs> oh, my Father, let us cry out in truth. <laughs> you have done all things well. And let us believe you. <laughs> let us believe you by faith, knowing that uh, it's the substance of things hoped for, <laughs> the evidence of things not yet seen. Lord, teach us this morning as we commune together with each other and with you. Would you be here, Father? Thank you. Thank you for being here. You're the one that we need. So we praise you, and we thank you this morning. Thank you, Father. <laughs> thank you. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So in the midst of the craze, I say the word craze, I suppose, a bit loosely, but in the midst of the um, all of the information and awareness uh, being talked about, about um, uh, COVID-19, <laughs> about the uh, the coronavirus, we come to a passage about washing stuff. <laughs> right? Isn't that amazing? <laughs> oh, washing hands, washing pots and pitchers and beds and, and everything, right? So if you don't know this yet, it's good to wash. <laughs> okay, guys? <laughs> Oh no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, it's uh, it's good to wash. Let's let's look at the text because there's a a particular thing that's happening here and some of the questions I want you to examine uh to consider are this. What are at least one of them? Are there ways and if so, what are the ways that we might have or maybe you can uh, think of some examples throughout history where uh we as individuals or maybe certain groups of people have embraced traditions that they have been taught that caused them to harm other people, that caused them to fail to obey God's commands to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. There have been many traditions <laughs> over the years. <laughs> now obviously the text deals specifically with some of the traditions of the elders of the Jews. Um, there had been uh, 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 rabbinic teachings that had been passed along orally for years and years and years about what it looked like to honor God and what it looked like to keep God's commandments. So they had one body of information that we would refer to as the scriptures or the writings. It was the writings of, of the prophets, uh, the Torah, and then the writings of the prophets, and then the other writings, uh, the books of like the Kings and Chronicles and, and some of those other writings. So they have this text that in the New Testament is referred to repeatedly as the writings or the scriptures. That's how it's referred to over and over and over again throughout the New Testament, one of the ways it's referred to. So they had this body of information. And then they also had these oral traditions that had been passed down, that were teachings that had been passed down by religious leaders, by rabbis, and by others that had been passed down orally for years, and many of which were actually uh, written down, um, codified, uh, written down in about the 3rd century uh, B.C. And then uh, those even had commentaries on them. Okay, This would be what we refer to as the Talmud and the Mishnah. Okay? Um, lots and lots and lots of traditions, and some of them extrapolated on what the uh, the Torah said about what it meant to keep the law. Some were uh, additional instructions about everyday life, but a lot of it had to do with what it looked like to honor God and what it looked like to not be honoring to God. Okay, so Jesus is going to deal with some of those traditions here, mostly because when this retinue from uh, of Pharisees and scribes that came together to Jesus. These specifically, Mark tells us, this is the group that came from Jerusalem. Remember, he's still in the northern part of Israel now, primarily doing his ministry. His home base was up there in Capernaum around the Sea of Galilee. So these guys come. I mentioned to you before that it most likely would have been their responsibility to examine traveling rabbis and listen to their teachings so they could then acknowledge whether or not this person is someone that should be listened to by uh, by 
uh, the rest of the Jews or not. They could accept this uh, rabbi's teaching or reject it, uh, that sort of stuff. So this retinue comes from Jerusalem. Verse 1 says, Then the scribes, or the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem. Now, when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, there's something I want you to understand about the, the concept of holiness. And I think in a lot of ways uh, it helps us to understand what holiness is. Because if somebody were to ask you, what does it mean for something to be holy? Most of us, I think, most of us might have difficulty really explaining that in layman's terms. What does it mean for something to be holy? Well, in the very basic sense, it means for something to be other, for something to be separate from what is common. Okay. The uh, idea of something being um, <laughs> defiled, particularly in this sense, is for something to be common normal, every day. The idea of something being sanctified or something being holy means that it is separate from what is the norm or separate from what is common. Okay, That's why we refer to God, and throughout the scriptures we see God referred to as being holy, 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 the thrice holy God, because there's nothing else like him. And I love that it's repeated over and over again three times like that, like Father, Son, and Spirit, sort of that Trinitarian idea. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He is other. He's different than everything else, and therefore he's holy. Throughout the law, there were a number of things that were called profane, and that word, all it means for something to be profane or in this uh, in this. Greek tense here, defiled, all that it took for something to be profane was for it to be normal, common. That's all the word means. It means common. Okay? So, with that idea, you get that when all of the articles of furniture were dedicated to the service of the temple, they had blood sprinkled on them, they had prayers offered and all of that stuff, all of that was considered to be holy. It was to be other. That means the common people weren't supposed to have it weren't supposed to use it. The priests themselves, they had to be sanctified so that they could then do that. They had to be set apart. They had to become holy by, by rituals and by washings and by other things in that sense, okay? So they were not common. That's the idea here. These Pharisees and scribes now come and they see Jesus' disciples eating bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands. Just, they're just eating food. <laughs> but something happened, or didn't happen rather, before they ate the food. Verse 3, the Pharisees and um, uh, with unwashed hands, sorry, it says they found fault. When they saw them doing that, they found fault, which is like one of the worst parts about getting together uh, with other Christians sometimes, because sometimes it feels like people are always trying to find fault with somebody, you know, like, just stop it, <laughs> you know. Uh, that's what they were doing. Uh, they thought that they, and, and it really is rooted in this reality. They kept certain traditions that they believed to be right, and they believed this put them in a position of being above other people who didn't keep their traditions. And because they felt like they were better than other people, it's easy to find fault with everybody, what everybody else is doing when you feel like you're doing it better than other people. So they found fault. Verse 3 says, For the Pharisees... And all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. And there was a particular tradition about how they were to wash their hands, about which way they were to hold their hands, and like how much water they were to use, that sort of stuff. It was a tradition that had been passed on uh, throughout years, and uh, they kept it because they believed it to be right. But Jesus' disciples didn't do that. They didn't keep the tradition of the elders. And so now they find fault. When they come from the, verse 4 continues, when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches, or beds is the idea of couches there. Uh, but uh, regardless, the point here is that they had all of these rules about traditions, about how they were to wash their hands, their body, how they were to wash the furnishings around them, 
and they were considered to be right if you kept the tradition of the elders. What's being established here is that there were really two bodies of truth, if you would, one of which was the scriptures or the writings, and the other of which, uh, the other uh, grouping would have been the traditions of the elders. Okay, so you have the writings and you have the traditions. And by the way, these two things still, and even amongst Christian circles, still can uh, compete against each other depending on our history, depending on what we uh, look to embrace as followers of Jesus. But uh, there are many, uh, even many uh, Christian groups that still embrace uh, and hold very highly to traditions that have been passed on through the church history, uh, even sometimes above sometimes the scriptures. So something that at least we should be aware of. Now verse 5 says, Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, why do, you, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? It's a very direct statement. Why, or question, why don't they keep the traditions? It's fascinating to me that it wasn't, the question wasn't, why don't they keep the law? Because they knew that this was something different. It wasn't about the keeping of the law. It was about the, the honoring of the traditions of the elders. So he answered, verse 6, He answered and said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of... <clears throat> excuse me teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. This is from Isaiah chapter 29, this quote here. I love that in this particular section, section uh, Jesus calls them hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? That's that word, actors. They were acting. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you actors? As it is written, and then he quotes the Isaiah 29 passage. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me. What's it like to worship God in vain? In vanity? In emptiness? In nothingness? It's nothing. In vain they worship me. And they do it by teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. <laughs> There's a lot of so-called truth that floats around cultures. teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. <laughs> I think of, uh, I've been listening to this American History um, uh, lecture series, and uh, one of the things that uh, is just heartbreaking to listen to is some of the ways that slavery and um, racism were justified by the churches. Uh, in the, uh, uh, particularly in the mid-1800s, but um, certainly after that as well, obviously before that too. Just unbelievable, you know. I mean, really by today's standards, I think most everybody would, would <laughs> we'd call most everybody racist probably <laughs> uh, from the 1800s. <clears throat> And yet the, the thing that strikes me is the way that even the church had embraced it, so much so that some church denominations ended up splitting over the idea of whether or not it would be okay to own slaves or not. And they justified it with all sorts of traditions and teachings. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. 
For laying aside the commandment of God, verse 8 continues, for laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men. Laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the, uh, the tradition of men. trying to think of some I've been trying to think of some um, um, maybe uh, modern examples of some of this particularly in the church and, and uh, I'll probably get in hot water if I use <laughs> one of the examples I was thinking of but oh well I'll just be in hot water I guess <laughs> uh, so so like there's this uh, tradition in reformed theology um, in, in much reform much reformed theology of um, uh, it's called uh, pita baptism, okay. It's the idea of baptizing babies, okay, and it's rooted in a belief of uh, the old covenant, the sign of the old covenant that God made with Israel being circumcision. Uh, but the sign of the new covenant, it is taught in uh, that particular tradition. It is taught that the sign of the new covenant is baptism, water baptism. So just as uh, babies were circumcised, obviously the males uh, were circumcised uh, in, as the sign of the Old Covenant, the sign and seal of the Old Covenant. So in the New Covenant, babies ought to be baptized as the sign and seal of the New Covenant, um, that, they, that they can be. So, uh, but the thing that strikes me about it that is, seems to be glaring, but I don't I've talked to a number of people about it, and they don't really seem to. Uh, it just—it's an argument from nothing in the scriptures. There just, there's just there's no examples of that anywhere <laughs> ever in the New Testament, you know. And so it always got me. So uh, anyway, so the the um, other side of that that discussion within the church, one is pedo baptism, the other is credo baptism. Uh, that is what we might refer to as believers baptism. That uh, when you uh, confess Jesus as Lord, then you you follow Him in in the waters of baptism. After that, so um, regardless, but uh, one of the troubles that uh, imagine if you would uh, one of the difficulties maybe that we see imagine if you would the idea of um, of pedo baptism of baptizing babies, coupling that with a theology that says baptism is what saves you, right? couple those two things together and you find yourself in a place of saying well it doesn't matter the choices that my children make or 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 that that person made they were baptized as a baby so they can do whatever they want because baptism saves you and they were baptized when they were a child right and so we find ourselves in a place of saying well how does that jive with calling out of the name of Jesus <laughs> how does that jive with the idea of of being saved by faith alone and not by work Like I said, I may get myself in hot water for using that, for thinking about that as an example, but oh well. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> so one of the things that I wanted to do as I looked at this text was to ask this question, Lord, what areas are there in my life where I have embraced, where I hold to traditions that I've taught, whether they're church traditions or whether they're just family traditions, where I hold to them in such a way that it causes me to maybe even be disobedient to you in some particular way that I act, right? Because the, the chief end of the law, the, the two greatest commandments are what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is going to give an example of one of the ways that they do this. Here's his example. He said to them, all, all too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. He's going to give a particular example of how they do this. For Moses said, this is what the commandment of God was. Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And he who curses father or mother, let him be put to Death, as I mentioned before, some of us probably wouldn't have made it to adulthood uh, under Torah. <laughs> so, uh, he who curses father or mother, uh, let him be put 
to death. But you say, so that's what Moses said, that's what the law said, but you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is korban, which is a word that means, and he explains, it's a word that means the gift to God. It, the idea here is that it's something that's been dedicated to God, and therefore it's not for normal, common uh, usage. Uh, whatever profit you might have received from me as korban, that is a gift from God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition. Just stop right there and listen to that phrase. Making the word of God of no effect by your tradition. That's, that's heavy. That's weighty to me. When I understand and, and uh, have embraced the concept of the power of the word of God that that's by faith we believe that the worlds were framed by what? The Word of God. And then Jesus says that they made the Word of God powerless, of no effect, by their traditions. The particular tradition that he references here is one where um, obviously, it would be our responsibility to take care of and provide for our families, uh, not only uh, uh, when we're younger, but certainly as our, as our families get older, we're to honor our father and our mother and, and help them and serve them, and grandfather and grandmother, etc., right? <clears throat> but one of the ways they could get around this was by just going around all their stuff and being like, that's Corban, that's Corban, that's Corban. They could just say everything they have is dedicated to God. <laughs> like, I'm sorry, I could sell this lamp and help, you know, buy you a meal, mom and dad, but unfortunately, I've dedicated it to God. And it may sound ridiculous, maybe, uh, but I think that uh, we, we don't even go so far as to saying our stuff's dedicated to God, Right? We're just like, what's my stuff? I'm not going to sell that to help people. Oh, my family needs help? Well, you better pull themselves up by their bootstraps, you know. <laughs> yeah, but, and, and don't misunderstand me. Maybe, maybe that is what they need to do. I, I don't know. I'm just saying that um, if the commandment is to love my neighbor as myself, and I'm looking for ways to get out of doing that, I'm trying to make the word of God of no effect by something. <laughs> Are there ways that I am trying not to obey God? making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you've handed down, and many such things you do. There's that um, illustration that's been used like a bajillion times that um, I think it just kind of helps make the point of the idea of tradition being passed down without really considering why we do what we do. Uh, it's uh, one about like the mom who's making turkey or something or a ham and um uh she like cuts the i think it's a ham she cuts the two ends of it off and puts it in a pan and puts it in the oven and the daughter their kid there is like well why do you cut the ends of the ham off or whatever and the mom's like you know i don't know it's just what my mom's always done so like they go and ask the the grandma and the grandma's like well i do because that's what my mom always did, right? So then they go ask the great-grandma or whatever. And the great-grandma is like, well, when, when I was younger, we just had this tiny little oven and it couldn't fit like a big ham in it. So we cut the ends of it off so we could fit in the oven. You know? So they just kept doing it generation after generation after generation because it's what mom did. It's what mom did, you know. <clears throat> the, same thing, the same thing can be true in the church. The same thing can be true about 
and, and one of the things that I've learned certainly in marriage is that uh, you have family traditions like when we first got married you, maybe you realize a little bit more but like you have traditions <laughs> you have stuff that you do a particular way and your spouse has stuff that they do a particular way because it's the way they've seen it done right <laughs> just the way that things were, were done in your family and so you know part of marriage is working out how to navigate that stuff and like how do we you know where do we is it okay to change those things well yeah you know make, make compromises you know work, talk to each other about it you know like well you know i <laughs> i don't know there's just there's so many of these things like the way that i load the dishwasher is definitely not the way that kelly likes to load the dishwasher and it's just just the way it is <laughs> you know <laughs> and um and i do it wrong i've accepted that at this point um, my way is wrong, <laughs> and that's fine. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, I, I know that's—I mean—that's kind of a silly example, but but it goes—it goes beyond that. It goes—goes—it uh, can be uh, you know even more than that. It can be like how we discuss things. Do you talk about difficult topics, and how do you discuss them? What happens when you disagree? A lot of those behaviors are ones that we mimic that are traditions that we've learned simply because it's what we've seen in our families, what we've seen with our parents or, or with uh, friends or others, you know. But where are areas uh, where there are uh, traditions that we have as the church? And those traditions, um, do they give us an excuse to not obey God. This particular one that they were holding to did, where they could just say, "Well, the stuff I have is dedicated, so you know, sorry, mom and dad, I am not gonna, I can't get rid of it because I dedicated it to God, you know." And the law said, "If you sw- if you swear something, you got to keep your word, right?" So like, well, I already promised this to God, so. <clears throat> making the word of God of no effect through your tradition which you've handed down and many such things you do when he had called all the multitude verse 14 when he called all the multitude to himself he said to them hear me everyone and understand there's nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him but those uh, but the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. Now, like in a in a literal sense, well, yeah, like when you went to the bathroom, you were supposed to go like outside of the city, right? Because like poo defiles you, right? If you don't remember anything else today, uh, you can remember that. Uh, <laughs> that um, there, there was a reality to this, right? That that it it made you unclean or ceremon- ceremonially unclean. That kind of idea, common not holy okay um so jesus said there's nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him but the things which come out of him those are the things that defile a man he's going to obviously give spiritual application to what he said what he means there if anyone has ears to hear let him hear which was a common phrase he used after giving parables right maybe that first phrase doesn't sound like a parable to you but the text indicates that it was a parable it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but it's what comes out of a man, out of a man that defiles a man. So verse 17 continues along those lines of it being a parable. When he had entered a house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him concerning the parable, which was something that was normal for them to do. Uh, the disciples frequently asked Jesus for clarification when they were alone with him. He spoke to par- the crowds frequently in parables, and when they were alone, they would ask for clarification. What does that mean, Lord? Um, also really vital for us to be asking the Lord uh, for clarification uh, as we spend time alone with him as well. So he entered a house away from the crowd as disciples asked him concerning the parables. So he said to them, are you thus without understanding also? <laughs> you don't, you still don't understand? Which is like one of the most unfortunate statements that Jesus has to make a lot, but he does make it a lot to the disciples. He's like, wait, you guys don't get it yet? (laughs) You guys don't understand? And I know that's probably, you know, that's true about us too frequently, but do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from, okay, and I guess I should say it like this. 
I have kids, and so, like, I realize that, like, I've, like, taught my kids a bunch of stuff, and then, like, they'll do something totally boneheaded. I mean, yeah, they just, they mess up, they mess up, right? And I'm like, you guys don't understand yet? Like, I, I thought I said this to you, you know? I thought you got it, you know? <clears throat> but, do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him because it does not enter his heart, but his stomach? and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods. Now, I don't know how that would have hit the ears of Jewish listeners at the time, <laughs> right? Because Torah uh, said there were certain things that you weren't allowed to eat. And of course, that would be uh, shifted uh, later when their understanding of the, uh, sort of the passing away of the law, the fulfillment of the law, and its passing away as it's spoken of in um, the book of Hebrews and as we see happening there throughout the book of Acts. <laughs> Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him? Whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him. You know, there are a lot of um, ways that, and maybe this is simply rooted in the, the probably is rooted in the, uh, when our philosophy and our uh, psychology is centered in, uh, or rather maybe I should say not centered in the fear of the Lord. As Solomon said, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but when it's rooted in uh, materialism or naturalism as its foundation, uh, frequently uh, the way that we then try to address behavioral issues is itself also then rooted in naturalism and materialism, something we talked about a couple of weeks ago. As uh, Jesus healed a uh, that demoniac who would, they couldn't imprison him, and they, I mean, they tried, he, he was crazy, you know. And that's what we'd say. He was tormented by demonic spirits, by a legion. And Jesus rescued him. Um, but in a, in a world centered around the idea that the only thing that exists is, is material things, then a statement like this maybe is difficult to swallow. Because when we try to address things as a culture, when we try to address uh, crime, or we try to address things like murder or, or other, other horrible types of things, frequently the idea is to change some outside thing, set up a law. Now we know that the laws don't really change a heart, right? But if all we think exists is just the material world, then I mean... I guess the idea is we're doing the best we can. Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him because it doesn't enter his heart? Which, by the way, right there, even in the beginning part of this, Jesus addresses what the, <laughs> the problems with humanity are. <laughs> it's the hearts of men. Always was, always is, and always will be. The problems with human culture, with society, they are rooted in the fact that we have a law of sin in our bodies. Something that Paul would say uh, later. Maybe we'll get to read some of that in just a minute. It doesn't enter his heart, but his stomach, and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods. Verse 20 says, And he said, What comes out of a man that defies? excuse me, that defiles a man. Now he's going to define what he's talking about, right? Because right here, in this spiritual sense, he's not talking about your poo, right? <laughs> Out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts. <laughs> Typically, most of our wrong actions begin there, don't they? Entertaining evil thoughts.
Out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, which is that, you know, sleeping with somebody that's not your spouse, <clears throat> fornications, it's a more generic word for sexual sin, it encompasses a wide array of sexual sin, the idea of uh, the, the Greek word frequently translated um, fornications, or fornication is the word pornea. Right, same word we get like pornography from that kind of thing so. out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts adulteries, fornications murders murders <laughs> uh, thefts covetousness <laughs> to covet something right to want something that uh, someone else has. Uh, wickedness, deceit, uh, trying to deceive or tell lies. Lewdness, or lawlessness. An evil eye, you might say greed there. Uh, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. Hmm. So frequently we are, as a society, trying to address societal problems by changing what's outside of people. This is why in many ways, I think that the responsibility and the opportunity that we have as the church of Jesus within our culture, I think that we have a, a greater responsibility and frankly a greater power in our community to be a force for change than any political system. The political systems, all they can do is try and manage the external results, the, the consequences of, of sin. They, they can't change the heart. But Jesus rescues sinners. He makes us new inside. And it's not what is outside of you going into you. That's not what defiles you. What defiles a man is what comes out of him. Paul talked about something similar, this uh, um, similar idea in uh, Romans. So I want to read a little bit of that to you. And um, I really want to read like eight chapters to you, but uh, I <laughs> I commend to you <laughs> the middle section of of Romans. Uh, right about five through eight, nine, right in there. <laughs> I'm really tempted to read a lot of it. <sighs> what time is it? Okay, I guess I, I guess I'll. <laughs> Maybe read a little less. In uh, Romans 6, Paul's sort of a uh, asking and then answering several questions in Romans 6, and one of them he asks is this, What then, shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey... You are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. 
I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your bodies, the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members, your, the parts of your body, present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. <laughs> what fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin, and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness, and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives? For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she's released from the law of her husband. So then if, while her husband lives, she marries another man, she'll be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were uh, in the flesh, the sinful passion, passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our, in our bodies, in our members, to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the, the writing or the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I wouldn't have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Therefore, the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. And just a summary of what Paul's saying there is that when God gave the command, don't murder, don't covet, uh, don't commit adultery, he said there was something inside of him that when he heard that command caused him to then be drawn to that. <laughs> That's how he realized what sin was. And he was drawn to that, that very thing that he was commanded not to do. It wasn't the, the law's fault, but it was something inside of him that wanted to violate, wanted to break the law. Has then what is good, the law, become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me uh, through what is through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. If we, that's, I've said before that God gave the law to make sin sinnier. <laughs> like, he, he gave the command so that we would know without a shadow of a doubt what sin was, uh, uh, even though the giving of the law didn't help us turn from sin. <laughs> it uh, just made sure that it was very, very clear uh, what sin was, uh, even though we really already knew. Um, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal or fleshly, uh, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I don't understand. For what I will to do, or what I want to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, or I don't want to do, I agree with the law that it's good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my body, in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I don't find. For the good that I will to do, or I want to do, I don't do. But the evil I, don't, I, I will not to do, or I don't want to do, that is what I practice. Now, if I do what I want to do, or what I don't want to do, what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my, in my members, in my body, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members, which is in my body. 
O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then the answer, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death in my members, in my body. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, in, in the body, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded or fleshly minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone doesn't have the Spirit of Christ, he isn't his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal, to your physical bodies, through his Spirit who dwells in you. Which is, that's what our whole hope is in turning from sin, is that it is God who works in us. That's what Paul's getting at there, is that you have the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God is who gives us victory over the law of sin and death in our bodies. It's a, a very primary, central doctrine, doctrine to the Christian life and to our walking in holiness and being sanctified, is the reality that it's God who is working in us and strengthening us for it. Um, there's several other places throughout the New Testament we could look at that um, deal with similar issues and talk about the reality that it's what's inside of us that is really what's what is the problem with us. It isn't just uh, it isn't just the consequences of those things. It's not just the external actions, but the reality that all those things are rooted in my heart, deep inside of me. And so what I need is a new heart. What I need is a new life. I need to be set apart, and that's a, a process that continues to happen as I follow Jesus. Now in verse 24, the last couple of, of things here, and we'll finish up. From there he arose, and uh, back in Mark 7, from there he arose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and wanted no one to know it. But he could not be hidden. I mean, just if you just listen to some of the uh, text there, he didn't want anybody to know where he was. But they couldn't stop everybody. It's fascinating. Jesus wanted something and he didn't get what he wanted. Like he didn't want anybody to know where he was, but he didn't get what he wanted. It's fascinating to me. Um, he could not be hidden. For a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard about him, and she came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. But Jesus said to her, Let the children be filled first, for it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. The other disciples had already kind of tried to push this lady aside. We find that reference in Matthew 15 where the same story is talked about. Uh, it says very plainly that she was not a Jewish lady. She was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by birth. And so Jesus' sort of illustration or parable here is the idea of him coming uh, in his first coming primarily for the nation of Israel to present himself as their Messiah, which he would be rejected. Uh, and then the great news of his kingdom, of the gospel, of the kingdom of God would then go uh, from the Jews to the Gentiles as well. And so he gives a sort of parable in response to her, let the children be filled first, for it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she answered and said to him, yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. Then he said to her, for this saying, go your way, the demon has gone out of your daughter. When he heard her response, to him, even saying, like, the the food for the little children shouldn't be given to the dogs. The idea is that she's the dog because she's a Greek Syrophoenician. She's not a Jewish lady. Yet even in response to that, she continues on. She still believes him. 
She still believes that he's able to do this. He's able to help her. Yet even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. Like even just a crumb. (laughs) And Jesus, again, as he so often is, is moved by her faith. He's moved by the fact that she believes that he's able to do this. For the saying, go your way, the demon has gone out of your daughter. One of the things that struck me particularly about this lady is that she just keeps on. She just keeps at it. And I think that particularly as it relates to us and the way that we pray, I'm afraid that sometimes my prayers are very weak. Uh, Actually, most of the time they probably are. and I think that if, some, if I don't see a response or if I don't get an answer immediately or if I don't see what I want to see quickly, then I just, I just forget about it. I don't pray anymore. I don't ask the Lord anymore. But this story is sort of painting a different picture. It's painting the picture of being persistent in prayer, of, of continuing on, of continuing to ask. <clears throat> Sometimes the timing isn't right. Sometimes... It seems uh, there's something that God may do, but there's a particular time that he's waiting to do it. In this particular instance, uh, his response to her is one that is kind of just saying almost no. (laughs) Like, (laughs) um, let the children be filled first. It's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs, but she just keeps at it. And Jesus says, because of your, because of that statement that she made, the demon's gone out of your daughter. And when she had come to her house, she found the demon gone out and her daughter lying on the bed, verse 30 says. Which means a couple things, seems to mean a couple things. One is that she then had to believe what Jesus said, which kind of demonstrates her faith. If she stopped asking him and left after he said that, it means that she believed him. She believed what he said. She went, and she found it exactly like Jesus told her it would be. The demon gone out, and her daughter lying on the bed. Another thing to bring up is the reality that the this girl's, um, this person's daughter, the problem the daughter had was uh, some sort of demonic influence. Again, we very easily and very quickly sort of we don't even consider sometimes uh, the metaphysical world, the the unseen world. In, uh, in dealing with uh, the, the situations around us. Uh, because in, we've been trained not to view things that way. Again, departing from the region of Tyre and Sidon, he came through the midst of the region of the Decapolis, the ten cities area on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee and around toward the western side. Then they brought to him one who was deaf and had an impediment in his speech, and they begged him to put his hand on him. And he took him aside from the multitude and put his fingers in his ears, and he spat and touched his tongue. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> um, <laughs> like, <laughs> like, what is... Then looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, uh, Epphatha, that is, be opened. He sighed, and he looked up to heaven. The description of this moment is incredibly intimate. But also, look at what the the trouble was. This person was uh, deaf and had a speech impediment. Trouble speaking. Jesus took him aside, he put his fingers in his ears. There's something about when a person touches you, you know, there's an intimacy involved in that, right? Like physical contact. Jesus takes his hands and he sticks his fingers in this guy's ears. <laughs> and then he spits. <laughs> And he touches, he touches the guy's tongue. And he looks up to heaven and he just sighs. <sighs> Be opened. <laughs> what is happening? <laughs> right? 
Immediately his ears were opened and the impediment of his tongue was loosed and he spoke plainly. I just... I, I don't know what to say other than that um, sometimes I have a hard time believing that... Uh, I have a hard time believing that Jesus does this. <clears throat> then he commanded them that they should tell no one but the more he commanded them the more widely they proclaimed it and they were astonished beyond measure saying he has done all things well he makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak he does all things well that's so what I wanted to sort of end with that um, reality I I suppose what I'm trying to say at the end of this is that um, I, <laughs> the longer I walk with the Lord, the more I realize I need to grow in, in my trust of who He is, of what He's capable of. <clears throat> And then to sometimes take a step back from what my immediate response is to the situations that I face and, and then ask myself the very real question, do I, am I willing to pray about this, like to really pray about this thing? Do I believe that it matters? He has done all things well. I think... At the end of our lives, I, I really believe that will be the testimony of every one of us. <laughs> uh, even if we don't necessarily see it in every circumstance right now. <laughs> it's easy for us to make, to make judgments based on the information that we have. The only problem with the information that we have is that it is ridiculously limited. The information that we have about everything that's happening around us and everything that's happening in the world is so limited, and yet we try to make judgments as to what is good and what is bad and what is right and what is wrong. And this is where we come back to the idea of, uh, for me, where I come back to the idea of revelation, where I, I'm looking to something outside of myself to be the, um, the place where I, I'm looking for uh, that kind of judgment. What is good? What is bad? What is right? What is wrong? And, that, and so I come to the revelation uh, in the scriptures but, uh, uh, for that kind of uh, judgment. But um, um, if 